So welcome back, uh, Gwendolyn. It's uh, great to back, have you back on the show. Thank you for having me again. So, yeah, I mean, I don't always do sort of two-parters, but I found our conversation quite interesting last time, so I thought it'd be good to have you back on. You've got a lot of valuable insights, um, and it's a topic that, or an area, let's say, that's, that's quite interesting. So I understand that you are actually writing and delivering a paper in Helsinki as well soon. So do you want to talk yeah, about yes. what that's about? Yes, I'm part of the Simone de Beauvoir Society, and they meet once a year in different areas around the world. I absolutely love the group of scholars there. I always learn so much. And this year, I'm going to be speaking. The, the theme of the conference is how do we use Simone de Beauvoir in a post-truth era? And I thought that that was a really fascinating question because something with, like, let's say Simone de Beauvoir or a lot of philosophers, there's this question of how are they relevant today? What what does it matter that somebody said, you know, 2000 years ago, 100 years ago, how is it relevant today? And I've been hooked on a novella by Simone de Beauvoir that's called The Woman Destroyed. And I read it when I was younger, when I was like in my 20s and I was working on my dissertation, but it didn't really speak to me. I liked her other work. And then as I got older, I kind of reacquainted myself with this story, The Woman Destroyed, and I teach it. I teach a philosophy of sex and love class, and that's one of the things that we read for this class. And every time I read this novella, I need to sit with myself for a while <laughs> and be quiet because it really hits me what she accomplished. And I think the reason it hits me now later in life as opposed to when I was younger is because she is talking about when you are... If you live a life according to the rules that were set up, cultural ideas, you are going to be empty. And the main character of this story did just that, just lived according to what the definition of woman was and gave herself over to this. And you find out that she is just vacuous and it's haunting. And I think it also resonated with me because Beauvoir, this was published in like 68 or 69, and Beauvoir was born in 1908. So it must have been on her own mind what it means to be a woman aging. And then for me, at the age of 45, I guess that's on my mind too. It's one thing to be a feminist in your 20s. It's quite different to be one middle-aged. <laughs> and I was thinking about the story in terms of how do we deal with today? And the reason this story haunts me, I think, is because I see echoes of it today in the way we participate online, especially for young women, where they are buying into an idea of what it means to look good, what is image, and all of this investment in image versus character or self is costly. So there is something to this discussion of talking about, wait a minute, what are my values? How, I, how do I develop myself? How do I care for the self? Because the consequences of not doing that and just buying into what everybody else says it means to be good is haunting. It's going to destroy you. So that's what I'm working on. Yeah, I think a phrase that comes to mind is if you're on the side of ma the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. And I think what you said there is is makes me think about that in terms of if, if you are conforming to the societal ideas or cultural ideas, whether that's at large or whether that's within your own family whether that's in your peer group sometimes you can lose yourself is that essentially what you're saying that you maybe aren't expressing your own personal identity you are conforming to the ideas of those around you to fit in but at the expense of your own happiness 
Yeah, there's there's a line in from Bell Hooks. She wrote a book called All About Love. And she writes that self-care is living consciously. And she wrote that in the 90s. And that has really hit me. So I don't think that, um, you know, cultures or rules are inherently because they were set up or inherently problematic. But if we are just going about our days through habit or according to what everybody says, not consciously, then that is a problem because there are some rules and some laws that until we sit back and ask, wait a minute, why do I care about this? Why am I following this are problematic? Then there are some other things that are set up that are pretty good, like loving your neighbor, not a bad idea. (laughs) You know, some things or rules of the road, not a bad idea. So, but it's important to sit back and say, wait a minute, what are my talents? What do I care about? Fostering relationships that are not based on gossip or anything like that, but on real, on real love. So I think this idea of, I'm going to take from Bell Hooks, what does she mean by living consciously? Then when I go up and when I, when I wake up and I'm making my decisions about how I'm going to go about my day, that that is a decision that I'm making and not just, I'm not on autopilot. I think that that's important that I never thought about that in terms of what does self-care mean? Because sometimes people think of self-care as like, you know, you go shopping or get your nails done. And I've always thought there's, that's not exactly what self-care is. It's, it has to be something meditative almost. So what you're saying is it's not a physical, uh, self-care isn't physical. It's more emotional and psychological. Yeah. And I'm not anti getting your nails done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm <laughs> not anti that, but there is something about um, today. It is harder, I think, to go ahead and engage in things that you really, really like because, well, I'll give you another example. Um, this dawned on me not too long ago that it wasn't until it was for a very long time and probably the, it's the majority of my life that I would measure a good day by how productive I was. And that did not change until I had my daughter. And then when I had my daughter, it dawned on me that the end of the day wasn't about what did I accomplish? It was, she's alive, I'm alive, we had fun, we laughed, we went on a walk. The concept of a good day radically shifted. And I was not even aware that I was in that mindset that is a cultural one of you are as good as what you can produce. What can you crank out? What can other people get from you? What do you have to offer? What do you bring to the table? That it wasn't until I had this, you know, interruption in that autopilot mode that I wasn't, again, aware of where this little being needs me and she is my joy. And then I realized, oh, wait, there is more to a good day. But isn't that in itself... Uh, producing good moments and producing a relationship or monitoring relationship. And I think I understand what you're trying to say. Um, and I understand, well, you've said it exactly right in, in that respect. It's not necessarily about producing from a monetary perspective. It's more about those things that money can't buy, spent, uh, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Or for others. Um, when, like, in just back to this novella by Beauvoir, the main character, Monique, she has given her life over and she's acting like she's so selfless. Like I've been a wife and a mother and she's given everything over. But what it turns out to be is that she was just playing a part. 
And she is demanding that everybody around her continue to be around her. And so what seemed like it was selfless, she was actually requiring other people for her to have some sort of an identity. She didn't have it on her own. So I think um, some things like, I don't know, like getting for me, getting a new book or going out on a walk or doing some exercise. I listened to a good podcast episode, a comedy one the other day, and I was just smiling and it just felt good to just do something that was enhancing the quality of my own life without worrying about what anybody else, what it was going to do for anybody else. Yeah, I think the, the, good, the good thing about your position of being a teacher as well is that everyone can have their own opinion, can't they, about how society is going. But as a teacher, you get to see that firsthand and see how the students are thinking, what their uh, thought processes are, what they're talking about from a what's in um, what's in fashion, for, for example. So you mentioned quite early, or a little bit earlier on in the conversation that some of the phrases, stoic phrases or philosophical phrases aren't necessarily concurrent with today. So on that basis, what do you think the current philosophical thought process of the youngsters of today is? And do you think it's healthy? Let me think about that. I think I don't know. That's a what is it? What is their thought process? It's a really good question. I think they are. I think that they are craving meaning. They have a different relationship to time and to money than what uh, just as because of technology. It's completely different. They are actually more inquisitive and demanding more of people in authority to explain why they have to follow the rules. And, you know, if previous generations just did follow the rules and they might find great offense to the younger generation, just asking, wait a minute, why do I need to know this? What value is it? How is it going to make me money? What is it? You know, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. So, well, sometimes when you're on the receiving end of it, you're like, can you just do as I say? <laughs> can you just do this? Just trust me that I know the process. But they are um, demanding more. They they have, and that might be because of social media, because they know that they can get on social media and get a lot of likes. And so that might boost um, this ego where they feel like in the real world can walk around and then ask these questions that are bold. And then older people are kind of like this, how dare you? But I think that what's going on is that the the younger generation, they are demanding more of an explanation as to why they need to spend their time in a particular way. And then older people, I think, are wondering, like, how dare you kind of like an offense of maybe even a little bit of jealousy that they never thought to stop and ask anything like that. But I also see that even though there is, it feels like there's a, a less attention because they're used to scrolling and things like that they don't remember a time where there wasn't communication without a smartphone. It doesn't exist for them. But the need for deep thinking and relationships is still there because I think that that is just an inherently true human trait. And I think that what we need to do is to find a way to bring that into their lives because it's not going to come naturally because the phone is now natural for them. And there's going to be big consequences if we don't pay attention to that. 
I, I'm not entirely sure how to accomplish it, especially when things were locked down for so long that then it just got more ingrained to be on the phone. And then all the parents are on the phone too. Wait, everybody's on their laptop. Everyone's on their devices. So it's very hard to then convince somebody that there's real value in um, reading a, a book or engaging in ideas when you yourself are on all of these things. I, I can't help but think there's going to be a reckoning. There's Something is going to happen. There's going to be a snap where there's going to be this rejection. All of a sudden, people are going to say, like, this is crazy. We can't be on these screens all the time. I don't know how that's going to happen. but Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to, again, just using a phrase to sum up my thoughts, the um, weak men create good times. And, you know, that that quote that's like, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times, hard times create strong men that whole cycle and do you th- I think that maybe we're in that oh. sort of process now where life's so easy in the western world specifically and obviously there are other countries as well that that's the case that everyone's parents has enough money to to purchase a house a car the kids have never had to suffer they've never had to you know work five from five in the morning manual labor whatever that is and that maybe that's the cause of this. I don't have to do what you're telling me. You know, I can instead be an influencer and earn fifty thousand pounds a month rather than be a doctor, which is actually an integral part of society. Do you think that's something that's come from maybe life being a little bit too easy? I think so, but I and the thing is that it's not working. Like I can tell you, it's, it's not working. I know um, when it comes to to my classes, there there's a part of me that's been struggling. Like philosophy is inherently slow. It's deep thinking. Somebody wrote that it's thinking in slow motion. It's not taking anything for granted and picking apart assumptions and getting a clarity of terms. It's slow. So how can philosophy even work for a generation that is fast paced? It seems like they're just mutually exclusive, like there's just going to be a conflict. But I found that the students, they still, like I said, they still crave it. They 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 get engaged in the idea. I mean, like we're having a, a debate about the existence of God. We're reading um, Pascal's uh, wager for the existence of God. And then we're reading David Hume, who is a devout atheist. And I was surprised the students got into it. They They were debating with each other. And it made me realize like, okay, this isn't just something they have to study for a philosophy class to get a credit. They actually were invested enough to want to interrupt the flow. And so to me, like there's, like I said, there's, there is a spark in all of us where we really do enjoy puzzles. It doesn't necessarily have to be like philosophy, but it can be enjoying puzzles or like we were saying with sport, this craving to just be better than you were the day before, this strive for excellence. And when we have some sort of a technology, and if it is hindering that striving for excellence, then we really need to take another look. Because I know we think of engineering and design as something that's to improve human life, make life better. I've had my engineering students say that. That's what we're for. We make life better. And then I say, okay, well, what defines life? Because If I were to say, for example, like with my smartphone, if I were to say, tomorrow, I'm going to make this better, that presupposes that I know exactly how it works right now in order for me to improve upon it. 
So even in something like engineering or medicine, if you want to say, I want to make life better, we have to start with, well, what are the defining traits of life? And one of them is contemplation. The other one is long distance movement, which means that if we are creating things that are interfering with that, then we are not actually improving life. So we, I think those are the things we need to pay attention to. But is there a limit on how far you do improve things? So, for example, the chat GBT and AI situation now where students can just go on and get the whole assignment written for them. And and let's say for argument's sake that the teacher doesn't pick on uh, pick up on the fact that it's AI created. You then get a generation that has sort of tricked their way to become something that don't actually have the underlying understanding so i'll t- we'll take as an example the calculator prior to the calculator being in existence you what you'll probably find is that more people had mental arithmetic skills than they do today because as soon as you have something that takes away your ability to need something again it makes it easier to forget or lose that trait cars since cars were invented less people now ride horses or run and probably we're less fit than we we were we probably can't hunt now as as individuals we have to go to like a a supermarket and buy our meat for example so is there a limit between how far you improve things but also by not taking away our ability so one final point on that before obviously you answer so egypt as an example we've forgotten how to build the pyramids is there going to be a time where we forget how to build houses or or something along those lines because of the fact that most kids now want to be influencers they don't want to be stem field experts chat gbt is now here and yes there are uses for things like that but does it take away from our ability to think is basically where i'm going going with this i think it does and there's an author you would really enjoy his name is nicholas carr and he wrote an article i think it was 2006 or 2008 called is google making us stupid and he wrote this before Instagram, TikTok, you know, he wrote this before all of that. And he was making the case that you are making. And that article was so successful that he wrote a book called The Glass Cage. And it was in reference to the cockpit for an uh, for a pilot. And every single chapter is talking about technological advances that have taken over some cognitive function for us. And we, as a result, can no longer do that function. And he is writing this before we're even at this point now. So I think, now let me say, let me say what the other side of that argument is that some some people would push back on Nicholas Carr and say, when we eliminate something, when we allow technology to do something for us, it gives us the space to do other things. So some people would push back on that. So I want to make sure that I give grace to another position. Um, now that's true. Like with my, you know, with my dishwasher, um, I'm not going to rail against it. I find no joy in doing dishes. It's absolutely very convenient and it does free me up so I can do other things. But I don't know if something like ChatGPT, the thing is that when I write, it's the same thing as exercise. There are some things that a machine cannot do for me in order for me to enjoy my life, to be fully human as homo sapien, a thinker and movement. Those are the two qualities. So while my dishwasher can do, you know, clean the dishes, there's nothing that is taking away from me as a person in it doing that. 
But if something is going to disrupt my capacity for thinking, for critical thinking, or for um, compassion, for empathy, which you also get from reading, then that's a problem. And it's the same thing, like you said, with math. I mean, if something is taking away my basic ability to do some kind of computation, then that's a problem also. That's taking away from the very distinct quality of what it means for me to be human. I think Nicholas Carr, who is not a philosopher, he's a journalist, but I think Nicholas Carr was onto something when he was saying this is an issue and it's not the same thing as other technology <clears throat> um, because a, a lot of other technology doesn't disrupt me being a human. Yeah, I mean, we can look- so I, I don't know. I, well, let me, let me give you one more example. I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just thinking about this, like in terms of food, um, you know, in the, I, I remember um, watching, it was on the news, it was quite a few years ago, where they put the first drive through in China, it was at a McDonald's. And it was extraordinary, because drive through had not been there before. And so what had happened was that you had to have people hanging out the window of McDonald's to prompt people to drive through something that seemed completely normal from some for somebody from the United States. We've taken going to a drive through as natural. <laughs> and then you see it put in a place that has never seen one before. And what would happen was that people would drive through, they'd pay, then they'd get their food, then they would park their car, and then they would take their McDonald's, their lunch into McDonald's to sit down and eat. And I tell my students that, like, what we think is normal, but like eating in a vehicle, getting more cup holders, having food more bite sized so that you can eat and drive at the same time, this is not normal. And we, think that better means easier. And that's just not true. There's something that we're we're losing by, and it's not even of any nutritional value, the stuff that you get from the drive-through. But we want to get so much out of our day that it seems like it's just faster, it's quicker, we're multitasking. But then you lose that time with the family or going to the market or maybe even going to a farmer's market where you're actually engaging with the people who create your food, who produce your food. And then having a beautiful meal where you can sit down and talk. So sometimes this idea of making life better, um, we're swapping that out for easier and that's not the same thing. And I think food would be another example where we're disrupting what it means to be human. Yeah, I think that with the the speed of life now, as you said, things go so fast now when things are improving at a massive rate, we are losing the the things that really matter. We're moving so fast, we are losing the time to think and spend time alone spend time in solitude as an example and you mentioned sex and love a couple of times earlier on you see that now with with kids they haven't got the chivalry to to speak to girls or mm. vice versa everything's online tinder and only fans and etc 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 and there comes a point where we can see the difference like if we show the kids now the vhs tapes and cd walkmans that we used to use they're like we don't even know what that is and there comes a point where I think that in the, in the next maybe 15, 20 years, unless something changes, those skills will be lost indefinitely because when you can't pass something on, it gets lost and it can never be recovered. And yes, you could, you could argue the point saying, well, actually, there's enough literature on what we used to do online, which is obviously the good use for, for Google and books, et cetera. But is there a difference between theoretical and practical knowledge for you? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. There is another article I'll put out there that's called um, 
I think it's called The Sex Recession by Kate Julian. It was also published in The Atlantic. And my students for Sex and Love, they read it. And it turns out that it is because of online life. There are other causal factors, but there are five main causal factors that it turns out that young people, it turns out everybody's in a sex recession, but young people in particular are in a sex recession. And she's just talking about how um, strange that is when there are, um, it seems that there's things are more sexualized everywhere. Um, so how is it that people are, are having less? And in the United States, I guess there was a bit of joy over it because teen pregnancy rates were down, disease rates were down. But then when they looked at, wait a minute, what's going on? That this was actually a really pro- a really big problem because when you think about intimacy and sexual intimacy, especially when you're like 16, 17 years old, um, and if that's too young for some of your um, listeners, uh, it, it happens. <laughs> but if what what that is really an expression of is of of curiosity and a lot of care and a lot of love like you know a boyfriend and a girlfriend who are you know 17 years old maybe they're senior in high school it, it represents a lot of you know curiosity and trust and love there's a real sweetness to it and the fact that that is gone is something we need to pay attention to because if because sex is the expression of that trust intimacy and curiosity and desire and attraction that sex is the expression of that so if the sex is gone that means that other stuff is gone too so where the hell did it go and you're right it is with young people one of the causal factors is being on the phone and not even being able to interact and one of the fears also is because of um this is according to the article but with young people are more likely to send like a a racy nude or a sexy photo of themselves than they are to actually be nude in front of each other. And so what has happened is that with the photos, you can, I don't know, I guess move or have the right lighting or the right filter and feel more comfortable sending that off. But that's not human. Human is that vulnerability. Things move, things jiggle, there's sounds (laughs) like, but that is all part of the fun and the expression and the intimacy of sex and our desire to get rid of that vulnerability um, which, you know, nobody wants to be embarrassed, you know, nobody ever wants to feel shame or anything like that, but that is part of what makes love and intimacy intimacy. There's no such thing as that without vulnerability. It's when somebody is a little bit, you know, everybody has their quirks and you just, you love them because of it. Not, and you know, you, that's partly what makes them them. And so the online life, we've gotten so far of what it means to be human. And it's even showing up in intimate relationships or a lack of intimate relationships. And it it got me thinking like we, we have not really treated, this is in the United States, I think in particular, we have not really treated um, sex as something that we have not treated it with the respect and um, really what it represents. It's either, it's either in the United States, it's either pushed away like you just teach abstinence only like it's just sinful, it's wrong, or it's extremely pornographic almost. And we're getting away from that middle ground of this expression of this very beautiful connection that people can have with each other. And um, and by getting rid of that understanding and dismissing it, we've just allowed for, for it to fall by the wayside. So, yeah. So you're right. I mean, younger people, they don't even know how to read expressions or have conversations. They find it creepy to interact with somebody in person. 
um, as like at, you know, at a party, you don't, if you see somebody you're interested in, you look them up on Instagram and like their stuff. You don't go up and talk to somebody you don't know. Yeah. It's, it's strange, isn't it? And obviously porn, you mentioned porn as well. I think that's a massive issue as well, because you're tricking the brain into thinking that you've had sex when you haven't had sex. So you can watch porn and, and feel that, you know, maybe that has substituted the real thing as an example. You've then got the... And it's making the real thing more difficult. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're really aroused by that, and a lot of it is violent, um, I don't know why that is gaining more and more popularity. That really scares me. It's getting more and more violent. And if the more somebody is aroused by that, then the harder it is for them to have an interaction with somebody, a regular interaction. And it's also for a lot of people, the first teacher of what sex is because yeah. of the internet. And so you can imagine young girls that that looks quite frightening. Why would you, so I can understand why there'd be a sex recession. If that's your first indication of what sex is, why would you want to? What If you're a young girl, no, there's, that does, that's not pleasant. That's not, that's not pleasure. That's not connection. That's not intimacy. That's not vulnerability. A lot of it is really, really frightening stuff. And so it's, first of all, for, for young men, um, if they're getting aroused by it too much, then the real thing in in person, it's just not going to happen. And then for young women, they're thinking that this is the idea of how they're supposed to be. And it's really um, not honoring the intimacy and the joy that they could feel from that kind of encounter. So that's what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's massive, isn't it? And I think you mentioned young men there. Um I think especially today's day and age, they it used to be a case, and I'll use my example. Um, so at school, when when like may the, the boys and girls were speaking to each other, and other boys maybe try to approach that girl, they would say, No, I'm speaking with a girl. Oh no, I'm speaking with another boy. So I'm, you know, not taking applications as it were. You know, I'm not speaking to anyone else. We're gonna see how this goes. Now with like Instagram, the 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 marketplace has expanded beyond the playground now, where it's not uh, on a school-wide basis where the athletes and the best-looking guys get the, get most of the, the girls and the maybe the nerdy, uglier guys don't really get anything, that's happening on a more worldwide scale now. So the attractive girls in the States can s- speak to millionaires in Europe, which never used to happen before, which then takes the dating pool out of that area. Do you notice that mm-hmm. um, within your, not obviously going into specifics, but do you notice that on on campus um, at your university that maybe it's a few that are getting the the pick of the draw, let's say, and and some of the others are, are not getting anything. So that I don't know, but I do know when I have asked them about the sex recession. This article by Kate Julian, I've asked them, is this true? Like with the causal factors, and they all say yes, yes. So they um. Yeah, that that is really a thing. I have had, you know, different feelings about the swiping culture when it comes to dating and apps. Um, it seems to me like I, I've seen it as there's some problems with it that, you know, somebody's reduced to being one dimensional and there's no way you can just swipe and really know. Like a lot of times you find somebody attractive and it's because they weigh the, the way they walk into the room. And it's their whole being, it's their presence, the way that they smile, the way it's, it's everything that you just can't get from a photo. And it is, 
it is also harming um, interactions. People will say the nastiest and grossest things on these apps to each other or, or the phenomenon of ghosting because there's no social consequence to doing so. As opposed to before this, if you were dating somebody, chances are it's because you had some sort of a connection with a friend, you went to the same school, maybe the same religious culture, the same bar down the street. I don't know. There was some connection to the community. So there was a social cost if you were cruel and that's not there anymore. And so people say the cruelest things or they ghost. And I know that that's really, it leaves us, it leaves from what I see the young people frustrated that they just don't really know how to act. And there's just a lack of trust. But I will say one student one time said, that um, he's he's gay and he does not know anybody who's gay. And it was because of the apps that he was able to interact. And it was also like a safety issue because he didn't have to worry about um, showing any kind of interest in somebody who might reject him. And it could be a safety issue and a high social cost as well. So I hadn't really thought about that, that if you're not in the realm of like a heteronormative um, relationship that what these apps have done is that they've opened up the door for different ways of understanding intimacy and you can find like-minded people. Yeah, I think obviously there are problems and benefits to to all um, endeavors, whether it's apps, whether it's chat GBT, whether it's schooling, COVID, whatever it is going to be. But if we were to, to try and improve things from here, you mentioned earlier that kids now ask too many questions they don't necessarily follow things from a direct perspective like yeah I'm going to follow you blindly is that going to cause if you did have a solution number one what would that be just to improve things moving forward and secondly is that going to be a big um, factor as to like if you're a parent for example you know what's best for your son or your daughter and you have to sometimes be cruel to be kind because if you were to give them sweets for every meal you know, they're going to end up with teeth issues and digestive issues and be overweight, mm-hmm. etc. But you have to control, think, okay, they can have some benefits, but obviously we want them to be here in terms of education, fitness, health, emotional intelligence, psychological, uh, psychological, psychological intelligence, all of those things. And because they're, because they're your own kid, it's, they tend to listen to you more because they, you're, the, you're their parent. But if it's not your parent, maybe you don't listen. What what would your solution be to try and increase compliance from the youth of today? Yeah. So not just in terms of like intimacy, but yeah. So so all of the topics we've discussed, obviously intimacy, the um, the uh, diligence situation with with jobs, etc. You know, one of the and this might seem so corny, but. I I think that a, a, a lot of it, so parents, grandparents, um, when there's another holiday or just a family gathering to make it a point that, because they're, they're mimicking our behaviors. I'm on the phone a lot. You know, they're, they're mimicking our behaviors. And so I think that there needs to be a conscious effort um, in for the people that you're close to. And this could be... Um, you know, nieces and nephews, but to, to do some storytelling 
to pass it down. So I know an assignment for my sex and love class. I asked the students to find somebody who is 55 or older who had been in a long-term relationship. This could be um, a parent or a grandparent and ask them how they met their partner. And it was, it was so sweet when they came to school and they were telling everybody how their grandparents met. And there were these beautiful <laughs> stories of this vulnerability and, you know, like these crushes that they'd never really seen them in that way. So I think a solution would be that, first of all, we have to take responsibility and act the part where we are passing on stories, having the laptops away, having the phones away, and sharing these kinds of stories with our family members, with the younger family members. I also think that there is a loss of love for um, reading and storytelling in general. And if you're older, tell us a great book that you read. So we can kind of get that back where people are focusing on their own mind and development and their own joy instead of being bombarded by, you know, what is going on on their phone. Because when you look on your phone, you're really either looking to see what other people think of you or what you think of other people. And there's no time for the self, for your own thoughts. So those are just a couple of ways or go out for, take the time to go out for a walk. So I think a lot of it starts in just the generations. This is aunts and uncles, grandparents, um, you know, maybe even neighbors passing on stories. We have to take that responsibility in the States, a really big issue, I think, in terms of intimacy, and this is considered to be controversial here, um, but sex education is very, very bad. And we're treating sex education as though it's just discussion of a fertilized egg. And so a lot of the problems that we have is that there's not really an understanding of even how the woman's body works. And so you're having young people engage in um, behaviors where it doesn't, there's pain, it doesn't feel good. There's a sense of shame. And I think a lot of that comes from the United States has not figured out how to talk about sex and they've got to. And I know that in the Netherlands, and I learned this from another journalist, Peggy Ornstein, who researched this, she said that in the Netherlands, um, they have just a much better outcome when it comes to sex education and less violence and less unwanted pregnancies, but the intimacy is still there. And she said that the medical community participates in this. And it had never dawned on me in the United States, there's like this war between teachers and parents. I never thought of like, hey, when you go see your physician, if they could inform you or have a talk to you about your body. And that seems to make so much sense to me. So the US has to be be a bit more honest about what sex and intimacy is and you know, not be afraid to name parts. I mean, for girls, it's like, we don't talk about our parts. It's like Voldemort. I don't know. <laughs> you just don't say anything. And it all the, because parents are so afraid of exposing their children to things too young, but the reality is the internet will get to them first. And the other thing, it's a safety issue. When children have the language to describe their body parts, it makes them safe from predators that they are able to express if something is wrong. Um, and then the other thing, if they understand that this is not a shameful experience, but intimacy and closeness and vulnerability with other people is an enjoyable experience, it's partly what makes you human, then you're less likely to engage in, in a behavior that will cause you pain. So as far as like this next generation, I, there's a, I've been thinking about what are the solutions here? I do not think the solution is to point my finger at Gen Z and be like, get your act together. 
I think that they are the reflection of us distancing ourselves and getting lost in television, microwave meals, fast food. Um, We are the ones who got lost in all of this and they are just mirroring that. And instead of getting mad at them, we have to take a look at ourselves and storytell. That's what I would suggest. Yeah, I think um, when you try and keep people away from sort of saying, oh, don't look over there, don't do this, people are drawn to that more. So I think your point about if you educate them about it first, it's no longer a big issue. They're aware of it. It's not something they have to go and search for. So I think that's that's good. Um, I think that we need to have hard times again to make strong a strong society because we don't have a we have a safety net for everything. You know, you can you're never going to really be homeless. I know people are, but on on the broad scale, there's like in the wild, for example, if you make a mistake, you die. Nowadays, you you, you make a mistake, you can find a new job. You you can uh, go bankrupt, start over again. And that's a good thing in some respects, but also you, it does cause cause its own issues. But I'm fairly optimistic actually, because sometimes bad things have to happen so that we can learn from the bad and change direction. So do you think um, that that's the case now, where we are hitting a crossroads where there's problems, and we, as a society, as individuals, need to come up with a solution? Because at the end of the day society is just a makeup of individuals so if one individual decides to put their, as you said put their phone laptop down start approaching the opposite sex as opposed to using these apps you think that's the way to change society on the whole maybe just you play your own part i think so i mean start a book club or get a get a hiking club i think that especially after everything was locked down for so long there's going to be this desire for getting people together, people miss each other and then just enjoy that more. And yeah, I think that, I think that there's a lot there where it it really is. I think it is up to us to make that maybe back to bell hooks living consciously that this idea of making a decision of how you want to spend your time that is enjoyable. I'm not saying don't be productive. I'm still I'm still a productive person, but I'm not using that as the only standard of what is a good day. So I still enjoy my work, but um, really take that time to, you know, call somebody. Like let's say they put something on social media, and they're having a rough go of it. Instead of just writing something, make the decision to call them call them, you know, or you haven't heard from somebody in a while, call them like these little things. It is amazing how much closer it will get you to somebody. And if you have children around, like let them see you engage with other people and laugh and smile and have a good time. So that's, that's my recommendation. Yeah. I tried to, um, I don't know if you've seen the wheel of life, um, which is made up of, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 different areas. So career, health, family, finances, hobbies, etc., uh, etc. Et the spirituals, I think it's another one. And I think that society now tries to focus too much on the career and financial side only. Oh, I need to become a millionaire. I need to do this. And are basically ignoring the other parts that make us human. So what you're saying is actually, like you said earlier, I'm giving up some of my productivity, which maybe <clears throat> reduces your business and career and finance is down from a 10 to an eight, but you're distributing those other two points to 
family or uh, hobbies or interests or reflection time? Do you think that's that's the way forward then to try and yeah. have more of a balanced life? Yeah, because your your body will, if you don't slow down, your body will force you. And I think it's the same, that's on the individual level. And I think the same thing is going to be on a societal level. So I know for me, you know, I told you um, yesterday was the last day at the university. I gave, gave my final exams. Um, and in the last two or three weeks, it is always, there's more questions. There's more emails. It takes up a lot of my energy and it happens every semester that I start to get a cough, a little bit of a cold at the very end. And it's because I'm putting all of my energy into this and my body eventually will say, nope, you're done. So today I I have a new book. I'm reading that book. <laughs> my mother took my daughter out to the zoo. They're going to go have a good time. And I am just going to relax. I'm not going to worry about emails. That's what I'm doing. So on an individual level, we have to remember that your body, if you don't slow down and take that time for yourself, your body will force you to. And I think on a societal level, that's happening. We have higher levels of depression. Um, fewer people are uh, in the United States. We have um, marriages being put off more and more. Fewer people are buying homes, not having children. Depression rates are up. The society will let you know if you don't slow down and take the time to do these things that are human, like exercise and engage and have fun with each other. Eventually, it will it'll shut you down for you. So I think that that's what, where there would be a reckoning. The good news, I think, is that the medicine for all of this, if you will, is really nice. <laughs> it's not bad. It's like, hey, have intimacy with people. It's like, read some good books, go for a great walk, laugh with your friends. I mean, fortunately, the medicine is very, very good. <laughs> what what book are you reading? Because... Um... I'm a bit of a bugger for this where I won't necessarily, I've got, I've, I do, I'm looking over there because there's some books there. I do read books and I do try and like, I read a lot more than I read actually physical books. Like, I read online a lot. I go down the rabbit holes, you know, I go on Quora mm -hmm. and Reddit and I just have questions in my own mind and I go through, you know, 50, 60 articles to try and gauge my own opinion, that sort of thing. And um, I think maybe I should be reading books more start to finish. I think the other issue as well is that, again, technology, you can go onto Netflix, for example, and the the book that you could read has been made into a easy watch that's three hours long or made into a series, which then you're thinking, well, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for me to watch this than to actually go and read. But you speak to 99% of the people who have read both the book and watched the film, whether it's... Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, whether it's, um, what's it called, uh, Last Kingdom, they all say that the books are better. So if they know that, then why do they not do that, including myself? <laughs> you're right. Well, it is more work because when you think about when you're reading a story, your brain has to create all the imagery as opposed to when you're watching it, then that's all done for you. So it is a lot more work. But it's also enjoyable. That's also why people get disappointed when they see the film and they're like, that's not how I pictured so-and-so. They are, you know, you have, you're you're participating the what the writer is writing and you're an active participant in the story because you're the one who's creating the image um, with the words that are in front of you. It's, it's um, it, it does, it does take a lot. I, I enjoy getting lost in mysteries and thrillers. 
I can't help it. There's just, I mean, I don't know why murder mysteries relax me, but maybe it's <laughs> the problem solving. But there's a book that I'm reading right now called The Women Are Up to Something. And it is about um, four uh, women philosophers around World War II, Oxford thinkers who really came on the scene and they changed our notion of ethics. And but what I love about it is that it's the biographical element of it. So it's not just a philosophy book. It's like a history of these women philosophers. And Iris Murdoch is one of the philosophers. And I I, I am loving reading about her personal life because she was apparently like, you know, very magnetic. And that's really interesting to me. And the other thing that I love about her is that she loved reading fiction and she loved reading philosophy and she didn't know where she would find her place. So reading about her, who is this brilliant genius to know that there was a time in her life when she was thinking, I don't know what I can contribute. I just have no idea. And it's like, oh my goodness, you're, you're one of the best thinkers out of the last century. And she had all of these doubts of wondering how she can make her mark. And then um, another book I'm reading, it's called Wastelands. It's written by an American attorney who was inspired by John Grisham and actually became friends with John Grisham. And it's a true story. It doesn't sound all that interesting, but I heard him speak and it is interesting. It's a David and Goliath legal strategy or legal story of um, a big industry of hog farmers, major corporate. They built their area around these small homes and they had created so much waste and these small homes that were nearby had no political power whatsoever to stop it. And their homes lost all the value because who's going to buy a home that's right next to all of this pig, you know, stuff. And so the story is of like one lawyer who finally came in and took the case and got rid of that corporate thing. And I'm just kind of excited to, I like underdog stories too. So you're more of a fiction than nonfiction person. Or is that a true story? I I would say it's I would say it's equal because I spend so much time reading philosophy that maybe that's just the way that I unwind is that like I need a story because yeah. it appeal philosophy appeals to a different part of my brain. But because you're a philosopher, do you maybe read books in a different way than someone else in terms of oh you know looking at it is oh what's the what's the moral of the story or oh, do you you maybe see what's coming or do you just enjoy it like everyone else <laughs> i might be i might read a little bit more into it where i i might be more intrigued about assumptions um that are made like let's say about characters if somebody's characterized um like i say with personal or uh, particular ethnicity um, or something along those lines. And if there's some added stereotype to it, or I'll say like, oh, that's lazy writing or whatnot. Um, or, or if there's some ideas that are unraveling of like choices and purpose, so I'll see it. But I, I do just enjoy them. Maybe I'll get a little bit more nerdy about them of some underpinnings of moral theory in there. But no, but I I enjoy them. So you you like the uh, the strong archetypes then of characters? Yeah, I like interesting characters. You know what? I got, I, I remember getting so hooked on. Do you remember when it was so popular, the girl with the dragon tattoo? I don't know if you remember that. I got, yeah, so I remember it's popular. So I've never, never read it. Oh my gosh. And it was extraordinary. And, but the thing is that I think it's from, from studying, I get, I get the opportunity to read really great thinkers throughout history. And so when I read a really good piece of fiction and I see that they're, 
they're working with some of these ideas about what do we think is justice? What do we think is, um, you know, let's say justice, what is, yeah, rightness, beauty, um, problems in society, interesting types of fixes. So when I see people incorporate that in their stories or work with those ideas, I'm more in awe of them. It's kind of like looking at, you know, reading about a city before you go and visit it. There's the person, everybody's going to visit it, but the more you read about the city, you might get a little bit more out of it. And, but I think people of all different backgrounds, like somebody who is a, you know, who studied literature is going to have a different, is going to see a different technique than, than I would. So I think people from all different backgrounds, you kind of bring that to whatever it is that you're enjoying. Obviously you, you write a lot of philosophical articles and obviously you're a teacher, for example, would you ever consider writing a, a fiction book of some sort? I've, I've tried and it's hard. I have so much more appreciation for what it takes to do that. Just the level of description or to be able to put someone else in the place that you are thinking of and also the movement of time. So I am so appreciative now of people who write fiction because I have tried to sit down and write it and I'm not good at it, but it's a great intellectual exercise because you really are using a different part of your brain to do it. Yeah, because I'm um, I'm writing my third book at the moment. One's out on sale. One is ready to be edited, and I've started the third one. And I had the same thought. I thought, well, I'd love to write a fiction book, but I started to think about how complicated it would be to write it. You would need to remember all the characters. You need to remember all the character arcs. You need to know all of the locations. You need to describe it in such a a specific way. You might get lost you know uh along the way how does the story actually pan out how do you make the story interesting so that it's not so easy to predict what's going to happen and um you mentioned murder mysteries and i, I don't know whether or not you know this or not but it's been said that murder mysteries uh are read by those people with the highest iq because they need something oh i didn't know that that's going to make them be on the edge of their see if that's the right phrase if you're reading for example to to have something complicated that's going to keep them engaged because i don't know about you, about you but i'm sure you watch tv programs where you're like oh this is going to happen in at the end of the film and you, you just you're just bored by that point whereas with murder mysteries at least it's quite difficult to predict what's going to happen even if the clues that can, can be there yeah and i i think that that's the joy and i would think you know in terms of trying to write it it's extraordinary. Like I think of somebody like Agatha Christie, how she cranked out something like 80 stories in her life and how she would have plotted it out so that you don't um, betray the reader. Like you don't give an, uh, you give enough clues that there are these different possibilities and that it makes sense of who did it at the end without making the reader feel like they were cheated. And Agatha Christie did that perfectly. But there's another writer, her name is Tana French. She's an Irish writer. And I she does psychological mysteries. One was called The Likeness, which was just so amazing. And then I read that she, when she starts, she doesn't know how it's going to unfold. She doesn't plot it all out. And I thought that that was amazing. But it was like psychological mysteries. You Also, if you read a Tana French book, that's also another type of a mystery where you need you need to be alone with yourself for a second afterwards. <laughs> you need to be alone and just like have a drink and think about what you just read. 
Yeah, I had some uh, one of my first guests. Well, on. I'm excited. Yeah. Now I didn't know that that meant I had a higher IQ. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of my uh, one of my guests actually on um, on my show initially, he is a murder mystery writer, and he basically said like how you just said about that lady. I can't remember her name now. There's two there's two camps. One camp for novel writers that they literally plan out the story. They essentially reverse engineer. This is going to be the ending. Okay, how can we? set up a decoy or a red herring here etc 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 and the others are the just those that sort of write and see where the story takes them essentially um i would if i was going to be one i would want to be the plotter and you know make it all really interesting but in reality i think that i would probably i don't know if I'd, which one i'd be um but uh it's a difficult one isn't it as to would maybe it'll be a bit of both i don't know but mm-hmm. um yeah, I don't know if you've have you ever taken an IQ test. I'm sure you're probably quite high on the on the scale, given that the the topic that you study, for example. I haven't. You should try it. I'd be afraid. What, why? <laughs> I want to be disappointed. It, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> thing is, with the IQ test, because I, I took an IQ test. I'm in top two percent uh, member of Mensa. It doesn't mean anything really. If you, if you get if you get in whatever you're going to get, it just gives you. Uh, an indication, I think, as to where you, where you are. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean doesn't mean that you're going to be more successful or less successful, but it's just um, just. But I'd just like to see for yourself, like what you know, where you think you are versus where where you are essentially. But are there mm-hmm. any recommendations from? Uh, what's your favorite book that you would recommend? Not from a, a philosophical standpoint, then from the murder mysteries or something that you do for enjoyment. Let's see. I think, well, Tana French's The Likeness is definitely one of my favorites. I always recommend that. Um, I loved, well, since I mentioned Iris Murdoch, The Sea, The Sea by her. And um, there was a great, um, I think it was, it was, I think it won the, like one of the highest literary awards. Um, I want to call it The Orphan Master's Son. I think that that's what it was called. I have to say my, my good friend, Stephen is a writer um, and he has a memoir called the Adderall diaries. And he had written, I think like six other books before that, but the Adderall diaries, it just like, it really took off and it's a memoir. So I, of course I have to mention, I have to mention him because it really is like a fantastic book. What is that about someone who has got like ADHD or something and starts taking Adderall? Yeah. And he weaves it in with there. There's like this, this present and this past. So there's this present where as a journalist, he kind of wants to find out if there's like, he was looking into a, a murder mystery essentially. So that's part of it where he's actually interviewing to see there's a crime to work. He's having flashbacks about his own childhood and his own family dynamics. And it's, it's really, it's really amazing. So Stephen Elliott. Just... Stephen Elliott. I'll, I'll check all these things <laughs> out. out I'm gonna, I'll watch this back and because you mentioned quite a few names and books and stuff. So as I said, I'm a bit of a like a not necessarily with everything, but certain ones I will have a uh I tend to go down like a rabbit hole where I, I research something and then three hours later I'm like it's a bit like the YouTube videos when you're like click on next one and then within basically three hours you're like I started here and I ended up here. How, how does that happen? But that's how I, I sort of like to yeah. learn stuff in, in some respects. So based on what we've spoken about today, um, 
is there any sort of final thoughts or ideas or questions or advice that you would give to anyone who's listening? Oh, for anyone who's listening, I think what I would love is if you reached out to the podcast and said, Hey, this is what I'm reading. Pass on a recommendation. We'll put some good out there to, or tell, tell a story of how you and your, your loved ones met to someone who's younger like that. If somebody can do that, recommend a book to somebody else, tell a love story, their own or of their parents that they remember. I feel like we did some good today. Love it. I love that. So thanks again for being on the show for the second time. Uh, Again, a great, great conversation. Um, And yeah, I'd like to actually, uh, if you would send me a copy of that uh, paper that you're delivering, uh, I'd actually give it a read as well. Okay, I'm I'm writing it. I'm still I'm in the process of writing it. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, send it when it's done. I'm excited. Okay. All right. Well, have a good evening. Thank you for having me again. No problem.